0: Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. Today I'm just joined by Madeline Davies, Deputy News and Features Editor. Hello, Madeline. Hi, Ed. Our colleagues are either away or working on other things today, so I hope you don't mind it just being us. Today we're going to talk about why there aren't more children in church on a Sunday and what role social media can play to stem what can seem like inevitable decline in people coming to church. And I'll be talking to the American podcaster and writer Mike McHarg about his fascinating new book about losing his faith completely and finding it again through studying science. Don't forget that if you don't already subscribe, you can get five issues of our print and digital edition for just £5. Next week, the podcast will be having a break for half term, but we return on the 3rd of November for a special podcast featuring Sam Wells interviewing Neil McGregor about his new Radio 4 series and British Museum exhibition, Living with the Gods. First... Madeline reports this week that the average Church of England church has just three children attending and the 25% smallest congregations have on average none at all. That's according to the latest statistics for mission. Madeline, this seems to make quite depressing reading.
1: Yeah, I don't think it will come as a surprise to people who've kind of tracked C statistics. Um, so from anecdote to evidence, which was the research that really kicked off the Renewal to Reform programme, um, found that nearly half of churches had fewer than five under-16s. Um, when you look at churches by size, um, the 25% smallest congregations, as you say, have, have no children at all.
0: I mean, this is quite worrying, isn't it? Because doesn't evidence suggest that most people actually become Christians and, and get baptised and confirmed at a very young age and those who go on to still go to church as adults ha- have often started going to church before they are 18. So isn't it very worrying that there aren't more children in church?
1: Yes, so um, the vast majority of people who are in church um, will have been born um, into a Christian family. Um, We know from some recent ComRes um, research that churchgoers um, will tend to say, you know, that they've been Christian since birth. Um, Professor David Voas, who um, was one of the authors of that report from Anecdote to Evidence, um, when I interviewed him a few years ago, um, said, you know, if you don't have people in church um, by 20, by early 20s, it's very unlikely that they're going to start going. Um, At the same time, if you retain people into that age, it's quite unlikely that they'll leave. Um, So the fact that um, many have no young people at all um, is very worrying um, in terms of sort of future projections.
0: I mean, things like church plants, fresh expressions, can that help?
1: Well, when we shared the story on social media, um, you know, we had lots of response from people saying, not every church... Um, And people give examples of of things and initiatives that they have, which they've used to either um, retain families um, or attract um, families and children to church. Um, Also, a lot of the grants that are being given by the church commissioners at the moment um, are specifically going to projects. Um, which the diocese in question believe can turn around some of these statistics. Um, I know some of the money in Sheffield, for example, has has gone to projects working with children and young people. Um, So the church is definitely sort of investing in this. I'm sure many um, people work in youth work would argue that um, at a parish level, churches really need to invest in youth work. um, And that might mean paying for somebody to do it.
0: So a parish church paying for somebody to be a, a children's or youth worker... Yeah, I mean, Rather obviously, than it just being volunteers who sort of come on a Sunday, that it needs to be kind of throughout the week.
1: Yeah, definitely I've heard some youth workers argue that, you know, if you value that work, um, that needs to be sort of properly, properly um, recompensed, particularly if you want somebody to sort of be working week round, not just on a Sunday, and engaging with um, people who aren't in church, as well as those families that you've already got.
0: I mean, isn't that all very well for the more wealthy, middle-class parishes where they can get people to stump up? I mean, how do a lot of parishes, especially in more low income areas how on earth do they find the money yeah. to pay for a, a you know, full-time or part-time person
1: I think so one of the models which um, I think uh, I think Worcester Diocese has used is that they're going to be investing um, in a number um, of youth workers who will be sort of based in hubs um, and then they can go out um, mm. and sort of work with with various parishes um, something else I'm looking at the moment is children's choirs Um, And I've had some really interesting interviews, that's going to be a feature next month, um, looking at how choirs um, are one way of um, attracting people who are completely unchurched um, back into the pews.
0: And I suppose children who haven't been brought up going to church, if they join a choir, often maybe their parents will come to watch them. And I've seen that in, in churches I've been in, that when... The children start coming along sometimes their parents actually start attending and even yeah. get baptized and confirmed.
1: Yeah, that was um, definitely um, stories that I heard during the interviews um, were parents coming along and as you say getting baptized um, and confirmed uh, with their children.
0: I thought it was interesting the reporting of these quite depressing statistics. I thought uh, there's probably some quite <clears throat> effective PR from church house releasing their at least great sounding social media stats um, that Tim reports about, Tim White reports on this week. You know, for instance, 1.2 million see the church's activity through social media sites, 90,000 views on Facebook for their videos each month. Um, I know the, the team there, which which is, there's been quite a lot of investment and recruitment to that team in recent months. I know it's, it's won a few awards recently. And we, we interviewed Adrian Harris, the new ish head of digital, on the podcast recently. Um, and there seems to be a lot of a lot of drive and strategy there. It's just interesting the way the reports had you know on the one hand, there's fewer people physically coming to our churches, but on the other hand, there's loads of people seeing tweets and videos i mean what what do you make of that?
1: I think the church is still really wrestling with this question of where technology and social media fits into its mission. Um, certainly, I know there's one gentleman who raises it at every synod. Um, ask, you know what, are we doing? Sewell, yeah, think, what yeah, what are we doing about digital media? Um Adrian's obviously got a really interesting background, working for the Conservative Party, mm. um, working for Bupa, I believe. And Tesco. Um, yeah, so he brings a really um, interesting CV with him. Um, I think the question really is... Um, what do we, can we dig down more into views and clicks? Um, you know, who is it that's doing this? Is it actually kind of existing churchgoers and people who who follow the account because they're already um, mm. Anglicans? Or is it reaching um, a new demographic or perhaps even retaining people who might otherwise have left? So I, I think we need those figures as well. Um, I actually read a column in the Telegraph today um, which was saying actually in a world where so much of our interaction is virtual, isn't kind of the unique or one of the unique sort of qualities of the church, the fact that it offers um, face-to-face contact and um, is a place where people who who perhaps um, are lonely or live alone or don't have um, a huge social circle um, can find that sort of personal interaction. Um, so mm-hmm. I think sort of not wanting to lose sight uh, of that, but also celebrating the hard work of Adrian and his team. Um, I think um, the sort of quality of what they produced is, is really impressive. Mm. Um, and it would be foolish at the church not to try and harness something which has obviously completely transformed our lives in recent years.
0: I'm just interested whether how we can tell whether people are, are seeing videos on Twitter or Facebook yeah. who don't usually go to church and thinking, oh, I'm going to visit my church, mm. or whether something really simple like... The church, um, I think it's St. Peter's de Beauvoir town that I cycle past from my son's school every morning. Every morning, the church is clearly open with a welcome, please come in sign. Mm. And I'm sure they do all kinds of things in the community. Mm. I wonder how much that real local expression, embodied expression, is actually more effective. And I've met many people who've started coming to church because of that kind of um, relational contact. And it's very much in their locality rather than a sort of national campaign. Yeah,
1: um, interesting, I was at um, Holy Cross in in King's Cross recently um, and several of the um, young men who were getting confirmed had actually come across the church um, because several of the young men who were getting confirmed had actually um, got in touch with the church um, through a Twitter account. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the guys who's a regular there um, had a Twitter account, inviting people to come and, you know, complete strangers um, Mm -hmm. at one point now getting confirmed. So I think that's very interesting about what individuals can do with access to social media Ah.
0: so perhaps a parish church or an individual who worships at a parish church can use social media very effectively but it's still very much pointing to a specific parish rather than yeah just a come to church because it's great
1: Yeah, I think as well, I've been reading a lot recently about um, how Facebook in particular is changing elections, is changing the way political parties Mm -hmm. operate. Obviously, we've seen with the Labour Party, um, you know, incredible statistics about how many people saw um, a Labour social media video during the last election and the impact that that's had um, on the youth vote. Um, so I think that's sort of, that's something to watch as well and obviously the Conservative Party now trying to work out how it can emulate that success and presumably the Church of England um, doesn't want to be playing catch up, um, it wants to look to the success of um, social media campaigns elsewhere. Obviously Adrian's already got that background um, and see what what effect that might have. <laughs>
0: Just looking at what else is in this week's paper, we've got a very striking cover of a statue of Lenin on on a red background. This is obviously to mark the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Got a piece by Dr. Audrey Wells in our comment pages. She argues that the failure of Russian ecclesiastical Christianity to help the poor played a significant part in preparing the ground for communism. We also have Jonathan Luxmore writing about kind of how Christians survived in the Soviet Union and in the gulags and how actually, despite the intention to completely destroy Christianity and faith, um, Many people's religious faith prove remarkably resilient. And Gillian Craig also reviews some of the coverage on TV about the Russian Revolution. So do look out for that. Anything you've been looking at, Madeline?
1: Yes, yeah, so Hattie, our reporter, um, spent the day in Staffordshire last week at a conference for self-supporting ministers. Um, we looked at um, SSM ministry um, a couple of years ago um, because there had been a survey which suggested um, that many who, who had that role sort of felt um, underappreciated or sort of in some way sort of regarded as sort of second-class mm-hmm. priests. Um, there's more than 3,000 of them in the C of E. Um, So we've got a great report from Hattie um, about some of the experiences and ideas that were shared at that conference. Um, and particularly, an interesting feedback I think is this question that many um, SSM ministers are also in secular employment, so they're really at the cutting edge um, of ministry in workplaces in sort of various different environments. And a suggestion there that perhaps the CV is not taking advantage of that in as much as it could. We've also got some really interesting letters on our letters page about uh, safeguarding and abuse in the CV, um, particularly this question of the CV's relationship um, with. insurer, um, ecclesiastical. Um, We've published this week a news story about a very strongly worded letter um, from three bishops to the chief executive of that insurance company, um, raising concerns about the way that settlements are being arrived at with with survivors. Um, there's been some pushback, um, including some, I think, on our letters page, um, about whether the bishops um, have really sort of understood how insurance works. Um, Ecclesiasticalers argue that it's been misrepresented, um, that horse trading is the wrong word to use to describe that negotiation of settlements. And a suggestion on the letters page that this should really be up for debate at synod, perhaps um, an opportunity for lay people, for priests um, to really engage with with what's happening now that so many kind of claims are, are coming forward.
0: I just want to point to a very powerful comment piece we've got by Father Graham Richardson from St Peter's Harbourn in Birmingham Diocese. He he's talking about the status of EU nationals in the Brexit negotiations. He's, he's speaking very personally because his wife is German and and just talked about the uncertainty that their life was thrown into when the Brexit vote happened and how he argues the government hasn't found, hasn't offered any guarantees about the status of EU nationals. So he, he's both arguing about what should be done, but also trying to convey something of the, the personal cost of all this. I think you've turned to a our adoption
1: yeah. special,
0: adoption and fostering special. Some great stuff there, isn't there?
1: Yeah, some um, really lovely stories about people in the C of E, um, including priests um, who are responding to the needs of children in care. Really kind of lovely personal stories about how that's worked out for their families.
0: I thought it was a really unflinching look, a story by Rebecca Paveley about what it can really be like to adopt. Yeah, she speaks to Alan Paula Coates about what it's really like to um, Adopt a child who, who can have had very traumatic experiences in their early life mm. and, and and health problems. Um, just open saying, Al Coates first became scared of his adopted daughter when she was four. I'd become afraid of her, nervous of when the next assault would come. I was covered in bites, scratches and bruises. I couldn't sleep, lying awake, waiting for the inevitable screams that would start our day at 4am. I mean, the piece also offers a lot, of, a lot of hope. and But I think it's good that it doesn't flinch from how challenging this is and, and therefore how remarkable the people are who who adopt and foster mm. mike McHarg is known to millions of listeners in the united states for his ask science mike podcasts and for the liturgist podcast which he co-hosts his new book finding god in the waves is published by hodder it tells the story of how mike a southern baptist fundamentalist lost his faith completely and how he found it again through studying science I spoke to Mike during a recent visit to London.
2: So I got my start in faith as a Southern Baptist. Um, As an adult, I became an atheist. I had a direct encounter with God that led me to re-examine my atheism primarily through cosmology and neuroscience. And I found myself in a place where I could embrace both a full and complete scientific depiction of reality and the beautiful mystery of a God that loves us, and from nothing but personal experience, I help other people struggling at that intersection between science and faith to find peace.
0: Could you say a bit more about your loss of faith? How you became an atheist? I mean, it's quite it's quite a dramatic story. When you were so involved with a Southern Baptist, very conservative denomination, were you a, Would you have said you were a fundamentalist Christian? or conservative evangelical at the start?
2: I would say I was a very nice fundamentalist, certainly a conservative evangelical. You know, the Bible is infallible and God's sole source of insight and um, teaching for humanity. Um, And the loss came from Bible study. Um, And the Bible study was driven by an extramarital affair that my father had. Uh, Dad was a music minister in our church and when he said he was leaving my mom that didn't connect with my understanding of biblical divorce so I told him he could not get a divorce and that he and I would do a Bible study together and I was a nerdy kid and nerds never win fights we have to have more data than the other party and so the way to get more data was to read the entire Bible which I did four times in one year And um, contrary to what I expected, that experience led me farther and farther away from God. I found in the pages of Scripture far more questions than answers. And ultimately, I reached a point where I didn't believe anymore, which was incredibly traumatic. Some people get to the end of their faith, and they feel like it's a freedom and a new insight and a new way of understanding the world that's beautiful and moving, and for me, it was more like a death. My loss of faith was accompanied by tremendous, tremendous grief and a sense of loss. And it took me months to recover and start to find any meaning in a secular context.
0: i sure you've been reading the Bible your whole life as a, as a good evangelical Southern Baptist. Was it that you'd just been reading snippets or particular interpretations? Were there parts of the Bible you'd never really encountered? and they suddenly stood out and made you question? If
2: you look at an annual Bible reading plan, they do something very particular. They'll take you through some passages in the Torah, and then in the Prophets, and then in the Gospels, and then in the Epistles. And when you go through the Bible that way, um, nothing can really take root in your mind on its own. So if there's a troubling passage in Deuteronomy you're only reading it with a handful of verses on either side of it before immediately going to think think Jeremiah said and then Matthew and then Paul and read that way it's easy to let certain passages in the Bible roll off the mind whereas if you sit down and you start at Genesis 1 and you go all the way through Revelation and you fully engage in every book of the Bible as a thematic work informing itself uh, some of these things become more difficult to avoid or to forget about. And that's what happened. It was it was studying so much of the Bible so fast in the order in which the canon is presented.
0: Can you give examples of which parts of the Bible particularly disturbed you or, or caused a crisis? Yeah, well,
2: you've got to remember, I'm coming from a fundamentalist mindset. So things that, that concern me might not concern, you know, your run-of-the-mill British Anglican. But right at the beginning of the Bible, for me, there was a tremendous problem in that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 gave a different order of the events of creation. And if God wrote the Bible as a conservative evangelical I was taught, forget a contradiction with science. This was a contradiction of the Bible with the Bible, which was completely irreconcilable in my hermeneutic, the way I read the Bible. Um, and I thought it couldn't get any worse than that, but as I continued into the Bible's arc Numerical values wouldn't line up for example in different tellings of the flood myth or in God's morality here's here's a God who I've understood is love who loved the world so much that he sent Christ as a sacrifice for us so that we could be reconciled on? a mo- mountain telling Moses the rules by which the wife of a man slain in combat could be taken by the one who who killed the husband and that seemed horrific and barbaric and then you get to this story of deliverance and exodus which I'd always think as beautiful God promising a land to his people but by the way there's already people living there and the way you get this land is committing genocide you not only kill soldiers in your way but you kill their women and their children, and in some cases, the livestock and burn the city to the ground. And this entire presentation of God's morality was so horrifying to me as a modern person that it shook my faith to the very core.
0: So you became an atheist and a secular humanist, I think you say in the book, but you didn't admit this to anyone at first. So there, was, there were a few years, were there, when you were publicly sort of acting as a Christian in your church, but privately. Didn't believe. It's
2: about two years as a Southern Baptist atheist, yes. Uh, It's unusual. It is unusual. Now, online, I was completely transparent about where I was. In person, I just was too afraid to hurt people to be rejected. Uh, So I sort of started to use Christian faith as a way to psychologically engineer people toward better behavior. So I would talk to people in religious language, but I would talk about creation care, or I would talk about caring for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the alien in an immigration challenge in the United States, and try to beat people over the head with their own Bible to be more humanistic. But it was exhausting to pretend to be someone I was not, even in the most intimate relationships of my life.
0: And there's a point in the book that's very moving where you, you tell your wife about your loss of faith. Could you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I married the love of my life and my best friend. And I can't believe she didn't figure anything out was going on for two whole years. I'm a better actor than I ever would have thought. But she finally could tell something was off and she asked me to uh, come sit on the couch with her and she asked me, what was wrong, and I told her nothing was wrong, and she said, no, really, I can tell something's bothering you, what is it? And I said, sweetheart, nothing is wrong. And then her eyes start to like glisten with tears, and she says, is it me? Oh my gosh. The idea that my existential suffering is now causing this beautiful soul in my life to doubt herself, crushed me, and so I you know, quickly said, no, it's not you. And then her eyes dried up, and she points at me, and she says, well, then it's something. So I kind of got like the husband switcheroo, and I fell for it. But I wanted to disarm her, so I said it's no big deal. Uh, I just don't believe in God anymore. Um, And for a good Baptist conservative evangelical wife, that was horrifying news and led to some of the most difficult discussions we've had in our marriage.
0: I mean, in the United States, outing yourself as an atheist perhaps carries greater, a greater cost socially. I think perhaps people in the UK don't realize quite how atheists are often viewed in the US, is that right?
2: Yeah, atheists are viewed very unfavorable until recently, like the Trump era. Atheists had lower favorability views in the United States than Muslims. Most people said they would rather have a Muslim president than an atheist president. Um, and in the Southeast, that's amplified. Um so, America is becoming less institutionally religious, but most people are becoming uh, free of religious affiliation. They're not assuming the label atheist precisely because of the social stigma. And, uh, you know, for me to say I don't believe in God, my wife is not only afraid for my immortal soul in her religious context, she's also fearful for our ability to exist socially within community, which for a social species like Homo sapiens, is a truly terrifying prospect.
0: So how did things work out? Did you, did you work through that?
2: We did find a way through it. First, it was a truce, um, an agreement to pretend together. She and my wife, true to her word, did not tell a soul about my dilemma for two whole weeks. Um, and then she told my mom, That's in which the was a real bummer. Um, but in terms of where it led us, That might be one of the most instructive experiences I've had in the entire book because one thing none of us do in the UK, in the US, or anywhere in the world is live graciously among disagreement. We have such a zeal to convince people to believe as we do, and that includes in marriage. And ever since this experience, my wife and I have experienced a more profound sense of intimacy Than we ever have before because our life and indeed our marriage is no longer about sharing the same views on the world or on God or on anything else but instead committing to journey through life together in solidarity and that becomes an avenue for genuine relationship to form that um, you can be more secure in because you are known for who you are and who you're becoming every day, as opposed to taking on some static social image for the sake of mutual comfort. And I think, I think if people, whether they agree with me on any topic or not, I hope one thing my work does and what this book does is encourage people to engage in vulnerable, authentic community.
0: And then how did you come back to faith? I mean, you describe yourself as a Christian today, no longer an atheist.
2: Oh, I had a couple of experiences that uh, made me think I was deeply mentally ill. Um, I was, by rather odd circumstances, uh, taking the Eucharist as an atheist. And I heard a voice speak to me that I thought was Jesus. And a few hours later, I was standing on the shore of the Pacific Ocean and I saw a literally blinding light in the air before me that surrounded me and made me feel warm and made me feel the presence of God and God's love and those experiences were so confusing from a materialistic mindset that um, I asked my neurologist for a CAT scan because I thought I had brain cancer and um, I say that not to minimize people's experiences of faith, but in solidarity with those who hear this story of an empty tomb or Paul's conversion and say this stuff is ridiculous. How could anyone believe it? And I just get it. I understand that viewpoint. But the power of that light made me realize how much I missed the presence of God in my life, independent of some fact claim about the world. I missed processing my day's experiences with a God who loved me. I missed believing that all things were moving towards redemption, that the arc of the universe was toward a new heaven and a new earth, a place of peace, a place of light and love, light being the very love of God itself. And that's what led me ultimately back to Christianity, not because I like resolve the atheist objections to theological belief, but because through science i found value in a mystical christian faith and through that mystical approach to god i find myself in the presence of that light again and again and again and it's not just therapeutic it's not just about feeling good it's not just about some transcendence addiction encountering god in meditation Encountering God in contemplation transforms us. It, it provokes us. It makes us sensitive to the ways in which we leave people behind every day. I don't think that you can truly engage in a, a, a genuine practice of faith and pass by a homeless person without caring. I don't think that you can engage in a deep Christian faith and close your eye in comfort to the plight of refugees all over this world. At its best, this faith shows us love so that we ourselves can become more like that love.
0: really fascinating part of the book, you talk about the two hemispheres of the brain Mm. and how you can always be an atheist and a believer at the same time. Could you just say a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so the most amazing thing I've seen in neuroscience is how it shatters our image of self Um, kinda the way we're presented to ourselves by our brain is an observer controlling a body and uh, it's just one observer controlling one body and if you look at the way the brain is structured there are hundreds of different structures in the brain with competing and sometimes contradictory impulses trying to influence our consciousness sometimes our consciousness is not even in control of our actions but it lies and creates a story in which it was if I were to take this book and throw it at you suddenly without conscious reaction you would catch the book or at least block your face and later your brain would say you chose to do that but in fact no part of your brain involved in consciousness is fast enough to catch a book and block it from hitting you and this is true when we think about faith Um, Some fascinating brain science uh, has to do with split-brain patients. These are people whose corpus callosum was severed, and your corpus callosum is a thick channel of nerves that connect the left and right hemispheres of the brain, and cutting it is a pretty dramatic move, and so it was only done in the case of life-threatening epilepsy. And people whose corpus callosum was severed encounter the illusion of a single self every day, because they can develop a condition known as alien hand syndrome where one of their hands sometimes behaves without conscious control. That could mean shutting a door when you're trying to open it. That could mean taking an outfit from your hand and throwing it to the ground and grabbing a different one off the shelf or off the the rack in your closet. And this utterly puzzled neuroscientists. And your consciousness is located in the the front part of your brain, but in a split-brain person, they basically have two front brains not in communication with each other. And they realized it's entirely possible that both hemispheres of the brain are fully conscious. So they wanted to devise experiments that allowed them to communicate with the two halves of the brain independently, which they did. And they found some really fascinating things. For example, one of the earliest uh, cases was a student And when they asked his left brain what he wanted to do when he got out of school, he said he wanted to be a draftsman, which is a very sensible occupation. When they queried the right brain, which could only communicate by arranging Scrabble tiles with the left hand, uh, it said automobile racer. So here's this one person whose left brain wants to be a draftsman and right brain wants to be an automobile racer. And does that make university make more sense immediately? why can't we declare a major our brain doesn't agree on what our life's mission is um, but the most poignant example I've seen was a split-brain patient who was asked if he believed in God and his left brain said no and his right brain said yes and for people like us modern people who pray to a God that we're not sure is there who both want to believe in miracles and are skeptical that God exists at all This is incredibly comforting because contrary to being lazy thinking or cognitive dissonance or any of the ways we describe doubt, it turns out to be the most authentic representation of humanity to view the world in multiple ways, even contradictory ways using different brain states and functions. So even though we don't have split brains, we do see that we often have split opinions within our own brains about the nature character and presence of God and maybe we should stop trying to smash that under our modern western feet and instead embrace the ability of science to describe the mechanism of action in reality to be authoritative on issues of how the earth came to be and how we should care for the climate and we let science be science and we let our left brains do what they do take everything apart into tiny pieces but also to allow our faith to transform us into people who cannot close our eyes into suffering, who see the ultimate sign of reality revealed in an empty tomb, and a God who was broken and poured out for the healing of others. To see the world as a whole and the people within it not as a collection of labels, but as the very image of God.
0: The book describes the effect of prayer on the brain and and meditation. You seem to say people should people should be encouraged to try praying even if they don't know whether they believe in God. Mm-hmm. Is that right?
2: I think um, everyone should pray. I think Richard Dawkins should pray. And I don't say that so Richard Dawkins uh, should become a Christian like me. I say that so that Richard Dawkins should enjoy the proven neurological benefits of a prayer practice.
0: And what are some of those benefits?
2: An in focus and concentration and improvement in compassion and empathy, lower blood pressure... Um, an easiness to forgive selves and others, an easiness of accepting outsiders. Uh, Daily prayer practice fundamentally reorients the human brain away from fear and anger and toward compassion.
0: Do you think a a better mission strategy for churches would be rather than trying to persuade people to believe in Christianity or to make a decision to follow Jesus, to actually offer to teach people how to pray?
2: Absolutely. Uh, These days I'm a Wesleyan Methodist. And so I'm all about inviting people into the practice of faith and not the ideas of faith, because I think the practice and the community will lead to healthy ideas more often than the other way.
0: That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer. One month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.